Hey, everyone. We ready for night out, snaps? All right. In order to help you get there quicker, let's turn to our passage for tonight in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. Sword drill, y'all killing it. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. This is God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that right now you would send out your spirit to go with your word to work in our hearts to make us not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We ask for your grace in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a TV show on not too long ago called Undercover Boss. And the theme of this show was that um, corporate executives would go into their business disguised as a regular employee. And we would see the way that the employees would deal with the undercover boss. And at the very beginning of each episode, we would get a a full picture of that executive. We would see how they built their company. We would see their authority. We would see uh, their, their power in the company. We would see them as they really are. And then the great transformation would happen where that executive would then put on a disguise. Their true identity would be veiled. They might wear a fake mustache or or wear a wig and put on glasses when they didn't normally wear glasses. The, the, 
executive would go undercover, and then they would go out and act as a regular employee of their company. Now, for the employees, this was just another day of work, and they treated people like they normally treated people, and they spoke to people like they normally spoke to people, and little did they know that they were treating the undercover boss the same way as they would treat any old other person. They did not have any idea who they were dealing with. And once you got to see the way the employees interacted with the undercover boss, each episode would then drive toward a great revealing where the undercover boss would be revealed to the employees in all of his authority. And at that point, the people would realize that though they thought they were just dealing with some nobody, they really were dealing with the undercover boss all along. And at that point, they began to wonder, how did I treat the undercover boss? What did I do with him? What did I say to him? Was I good to him? Was I kind to him? And at that point, the corporate executive would give rewards to faithful employees. And to unfaithful employees, they would usually terminate them. And as you think about this, you need to understand that our lives as, as people in this world are much like an episode of the undercover boss. Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is present in this world. And He is present in this world in His people around us. But so often we don't recognize that the same Jesus who is glorious and, and kingly and, and powerful is veiled to us. And the way that we're treating the people around us is saying something about the way that we're treating him. And what the scriptures tell us is that all of this world's history is driving toward the climactic moment where Jesus will be revealed in all of his glory, where we will see the, the king of glory revealed in his fullness. And at that moment, we will be wondering... How did I treat the undercover boss? And at that time, he will gather his faithful ones to himself into his kingdom, and he will judge those who have been unfaithful to him. And today, this passage of scripture is going to take us another step in what we've been talking about with respect to peace with God and reconciliation. And tonight, what I want you to see is the urgency of reconciliation. I want you to see the urgency of it. I, I am a pastor of a cross-cultural church, and one of the things that I often get from people is this. Oh, that's nice. I like that you do that kind of thing. That's a neat hobby. That's it. Like, he, he really has a passion for cross-cultural stuff, and it, it, a lot of times it's treated like the way we love one another and the way we love across lines within the body of Christ. A lot of times it's treated as if, as if it's a, an elective, as if it's an, an option, as if you can like really have the Christian faith a la carte. 
Like, I just want this part right here. I don't want that part. But what we're going to see is that there is an urgency to the way in which we treat people. And it's all based upon the way that we have been treated by God in the gospel. So tonight, we got to get into this urgency of reconciliation. And we're going to approach it through two points where we see seeing judgment rightly and seeing people rightly. How do you get a sense of the urgency of reconciliation? You got to see judgment rightly and you got to see people rightly. So let's look at our first point, seeing judgment rightly. Jesus gives this teaching to his disciples three days before he goes to the cross. He's about to be brutally tortured. He's about to go through injustice. He's about to give his life over as a ransom for many. And he lays down this powerful teaching for his disciples. And in verses 31 through 33, this is what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Listen, when when most people think about Jesus, they think about the Jesus of the Gospels, the meek and lowly Jesus, the kind and gracious Jesus who ate with sinners and welcomed tax collectors, and he was patient with people, and and, and he, he, he he was a gentle person. But they fail to recognize that that is only half of the story. Because theologians recognize that that there were two states to the the life of Christ. They they call it, in fancy terms, the status duplex. The two states of Christ are Christ in his humiliation and Christ in his exaltation. Christ, when he humbled himself, took on human flesh and, and lived in this world as the undercover boss. And Christ, when he returns in all of his glory, exalted, unveiled, and we behold him in his power. Those are two states. And most people don't think about Jesus in this second way, that he is glorious and powerful, that he is a king. But this is the way Jesus presents himself to his disciples in his teaching. And what he's doing, and you can write this down in your notes, Jesus is, is echoing a passage of scripture in the book of Daniel chapter 7. And in the book of Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10 and verses 13 through 14, this is what the passage says. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying in Matthew 25, that passage is all about me. That passage is a description of what's going to happen when I return. He's claiming this glory and this majesty for himself. 
And it wasn't a surprise to the disciples to hear that judgment was coming. But it's hard to put in the words how this rang in the ears of first century Jews as such good news. Judgment, good news, yes. This rang in their ears as good news. And this is very strange for for us in our modern context because we... As a, as a general rule, we people who are modern, we don't like the idea of judgment, do we? Have you ever heard someone say, you can't judge me, only God can judge me? Have you ever heard someone say that? Now, when people say that to me, my typical response is, and that comforts you? You're really comforted that God can judge you? You would rather be judged by God than by me? You are crazy. But we don't like judgment in our context. We don't like that idea. But here's the deal. That is because in our modern context, we are blinded to what judgment is about. And to these ancients, they knew that judgment was good news for those who were on God's side. It's not good news for those who are resisting and rebelling against God, who don't want God in their life. It's it's scary news. But for those who are on God's side, this is good news. And there are three things that you need to appreciate. You're entering into college pretty soon. You're living in a cultural context that is not growing more friendly to the the teachings of Scripture, but more and more resisted teachings of Scripture. And you have to know why you believe what you believe. And the Scriptures teach this. And there are three things I want to bring out for you to help you to appreciate how you should understand judgment. One, the first thing I want to say is this. Ancient people and Christians throughout history have understood that justice and judgment are just two sides of the same coin. How many of you care about justice? How many of you heard people in our culture longing for justice, wanting justice? Well, here's the thing. If you want justice, then there must be judgment. There is no such thing as getting justice without judgment. These disciples were encouraged by the certainty of cosmic judgment. Rome, the government of Rome was against them, was using its power to oppress them. But they heard the judgment of God as good news that God would make this right. It's good news if you're on God's side. Second, most of us don't appreciate the historic and global difficulty of enduring a corrupt justice system. Listen, C.S. Lewis once put it this way, and this is a quote, and I find this very useful. It's very helpful because I'd never thought about it before this. But he said this. He said, in most places and times, it has been very difficult for the small man to get his case heard. The judge has to be bribed. If you can't afford to oil his palm, your case will never reach court. Our judges do not receive bribes. We need not therefore be surprised if the Psalms and the prophets and all the scriptures are full of the longing for judgment and regard the announcement that judgment is coming as good news. Hundreds and thousands of people who have been stripped of all they possess and who have the right entirely on their side will at last be heard. They know that their case is unanswerable if only it could be heard. When God comes to judge, at last it will. 
Every evil will be answered for. And this leads to the third thing that I want to say about judgment briefly to equip you. And it's this. If you have a hard time with judgment, it's likely because you are culturally blinded by your own privileges that you've never needed justice. You've never needed judgment. You've never needed to come in and make something that's been horribly wrong made right in your life. But think about this. This is one of the reasons why we need cross-cultural community. This is one of the reasons why cross-cultural isn't just a nice idea, but it is absolutely critical to our understanding of the truth, our understanding of our faith, and our understanding of God. Because guess what? If you went and you talked to people in history, Christians in history, who were being who are being tortured for their faith. And you ask, if you told those people, if you went to them, if you, could, if you could travel back through time and tell those who were burned at the stake and fed to the lions that there's no such thing as judgment, that you, you can't believe in a God of judgment, they would say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> are you kidding me? Do you mean to tell me that God isn't going to make this right? No. They would have none of it. If you traveled around the globe right now and you talked to brothers and sisters in the faith who are in China being persecuted right now at this very minute for their faith and you told them that there is no judgment, they would tell you that you're blinded by your own culture because we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave where we are free to worship. No one's going to bust through these doors and arrest me and put y'all in jail. No one is going to bust through these doors and make me either deny the scriptures or die. But some are facing that right now. And to know that God will make it right, to know that God will judge evil, is the most comforting and hopeful news that those who belong to God, those who are on God's side, could hear. Now here's the thing. Many of you raised your hands when you said you really love the idea of justice. And you should. And we have already said that if you're going to have justice, there must be judgment. And all of us believe that when we look out at the evil out there, the, the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the, and the, the evil that has you know, created genocide and, and destroyed entire nations, we all believe that judgment should go out there. But here's the deal. If you're going to be consistent, you have to know this. That if God is judging the evil out there, then he must judge the evil in here. And the question is, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to face that day? We're going to come back to that question. But we see why this matters. That judgment is seen rightly through the eyes of a biblical lens. But we need to look at the second point. We need to see people rightly. We need to see people rightly. Now look. In this story, we heard Jesus telling us that on that day, he's going to gather all the nations to him. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then Jesus tells us that he's going to say to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he's going to tell those on his left, depart from me. And here's the deal. I want you to notice in this passage, notice in this passage 
that neither the sheep nor the goats express surprise at the fact of judgment. None of them express surprise. Nor did they express any surprise at the fact that they were assigned to a particular place. The sheep weren't surprised that they were placed in the kingdom and the goats don't express any surprise that they are expelled from the presence of God. But you know what? They are all surprised at the reason the Son of Man gives for this assignment. That they are admitted or excluded from the kingdom on the basis of how they treated Jesus. They had no idea that they were running into the undercover boss, but yet they were running into Jesus every day and they did not recognize it. They were running into Jesus in the form of his people around them and they were not treating him right or they were treating him right. They're, they're surprised at the basis for the judgment. When Jesus says, my brothers in this text, he's talking about Christians particularly the poor and needy of his people. And here's the deal. Jesus, what we see is that Jesus lives in such close union with his people that to mistreat his people is to mistreat him. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus was on his way to persecute Christians, that Jesus stops him on the road and he says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting them? Is that what he says? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what Jesus is saying is that to persecute his people is to persecute him. To do wrong by his people is to do wrong by him. How you treat his people is how you treat him. Let me put it another way. How you treat my wife, Vanessa, is how you treat me. And you cannot possibly think that you can make a practice of mistreating my wife and think that you and I are going to be on good terms. You can't possibly think that you can make a practice of mistreating my wife and then turn around and think that you and I are going to be friends. That's, that doesn't make sense. And this is the idea that we're getting here, y'all. How you treat his people is how you treat him. Now, here's the thing. All of us recognize that we have mistreated Jesus, don't we? We all can look at our own lives and see times where we mistreated Jesus. But do you know what the good news of this passage is? The good news of this passage is that it is a description. When Jesus describes the treatment that the sheep gave to him, you have to realize that this is a description of the way that he treated them first. In other words, let me put it like this. The good news of the gospel is that you were hungry and Jesus gave you the bread from heaven. You were thirsty and Jesus became to you the water of life. You were a stranger apart from God and without hope in the world. But God brought you near through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You were naked and exposed before a holy God. And Jesus clothed you in his righteousness divine. That is good news. You were sick and Jesus didn't just visit you. Jesus came and he healed you of your infirmities. 
You were in prison to your sin and your idolatries and your shame. And Jesus came and broke through. The light shone into the dungeon. He broke the chains. He opened the prison and set you free. Before you become the kind of person who lives in this kind of love toward Jesus in the form of the people around you, you must first know that you have been loved in this way, that Jesus has treated you this way. The beauty of the gospel is, is that the undercover boss treated his employees in this way. <laughs> you see, the story of the gospel is the, is the hero dying for the villains. That's the astonishing thing. And now, here's the deal. You have to appreciate this. This text in no way contradicts or conflicts with the teaching of Scripture that says we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is not by works. We know Ephesians 2, right? You are saved by grace, not through works, so that no one can boast. And at the same time, the Scriptures teach us that the demonstration of saving faith shows up in these ways. Now, unless you think, lest you think that I'm just being judgy or moralistic, I want you to hear the words of Scripture. And this is from the brother of Jesus. And tell me if this sounds familiar. James says this. In chapter 2, verses, beginning with verse, verse 14, this is what James says. He is the brother of Jesus. He was present at the teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew 25. And this is what he says in zero conflict with the Apostle Paul. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, will that faith Bring him to safety on the day when the Son of Man comes. Will he be labeled with the sheep or will he be separated out with the goats? That's what James is asking. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. One of our theologians put it like this. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It comes with works. It comes with love. It comes with obedience. It comes with patience and goodness, the fruit of the Spirit. It comes with... Feeding hungry people in the form of your brothers and sisters. It comes in giving drink to the thirsty. It comes in the form of welcoming strangers. It comes in the form of clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and visiting those who are imprisoned. Do you see how this fits together? Do you see what Jesus is saying? This is what true faith looks like on display. And on that final day of judgment, it will come clear. 
And Jesus will be delighted to welcome his people who struggle, even with small faith, to live up into this picture. This is, this is the call of the text. The call of the text. And remember what we said a few nights ago. It's all about the gospel, y'all. It's all about Jesus. Jesus in the center of our lives. Jesus as the love of our hearts. Jesus as our greatest love, our highest and deepest desire. Jesus as our all in all. And when you know that the Jesus who will come in glory was so willing to humble himself so that he could feed you and give you drink and clothe you and heal you and visit you, then you become the kind of person who does the same back to Jesus in the form of his people around you. Why do you show grace to others? Because Jesus showed grace to you. Why should you show mercy to others? Because Jesus showed mercy to you. In other words, the Lord wants to make you a witness to his saving and transforming love. He wants you to be an audiovisual display. He wants people to be able to see, like, just to scratch the surface a little bit of what God is like through the way that you live and the way that you love and serve and bless rather than curse. But let's get this on the ground pastorally. I want to get this on the ground practically. And I want you to begin to think of your life. And I want you to begin to think of your relationships. And now I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to say this to you. How you treat the Christian people in your life, especially the poor and marginalized ones, is how you treat Jesus. How you treat your friends is how you treat Jesus. Are you mean to them? Are you impatient with them? Are you unkind to them? How you treat the needy, marginalized people in your circles is how you treat Jesus. Do you mock them? Do you keep them forever on the margins? Do you laugh at them because they're not as in as you are? How you treat the awkward people in your life, whoever you judge to be awkward, and you are awkward to somebody, trust me. How you deal with the awkward people in your life is how you deal with Jesus. And it is a sobering thing, isn't it? It's a sobering thing to realize. And the text doesn't say that they have to act like Jesus in order for you to be called to treat them like Jesus. That's an important, important note. They don't have to act like Jesus for you to treat them like Jesus. You are still on the hook. Could you imagine the king in all of his glory? Could you imagine saying to Jesus if he says, you sinned against me, you hurt me. Could you imagine saying to him, Jesus, you're just so sensitive. Jesus, you're just, you're such a baby. <laughs> Toughen up, Jesus. Could you imagine mocking, ha, Jesus, he's such a dork, oh my gosh, you're not coming to my party, Jesus. And Jesus says, yep, you're right, I'm not coming to your party. Right, like think about that. It's sobering. How you treat the people around you is how you treat Jesus. 
And you can say, oh, you can plead all the Bible studies you want and all the church attendance you want and all of the other stuff you want. But the acid test is how you treat Jesus in the form of the people around you. That's what shows the quality of your faith. And also notice how the focus in this passage is not on the bad things that people have done to others, but on the good things that they have failed to do for brothers and sisters. And notice that the things that they have failed to do are simple, 101 Christian things. Giving food, giving a drink, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, welcoming the outsider, extending welcome, visitation. These are simple, easy things to do. That's that's the thing. This is just 101. It's basic practice for the Christian. I'm going to finish up with, with this. You may be familiar with the passage from C.S. Lewis where he says this. He says, remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Powerful passage for us to remember the weight of the dignity that the people around us carry, whether they're black, brown, white, whether they speak Spanish, Chinese, or or Thai, whether they have lots of money in the bank or they don't know where their next meal is coming from, whether they whether they live up to our cultural expectations or not, whether they speak with an accent like ours or not, how we treat them is how we treat Jesus. And because, friends, you have received such good news in Jesus, because of his overwhelming goodness to you, because of his kindness in feeding you and giving you drink and clothing you and, and welcoming you and visiting you and healing you. Let it be your goal and your joy and your prayer that God would produce in you the kind of faith and the kind of repentance that will find you one day hearing the words of King Jesus. Come. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful. And we pray that your word would go with these students as they leave this place. And that it would ring in their souls. And that they would be so moved by the goodness of Jesus. By the kindness of the Father and the continual presence of the Spirit. That they would would make it their, their life's ambition to live into this beautiful picture of love and service to Jesus. Lord, I pray for our friends in here who are still wrestling with 
whether or not they can believe this. We pray, Lord, that they would know that you're the kind of God that before you come on that day of judgment, you visited to be judged for us in your humiliation. And I pray that they would know that by simple faith in Christ and what he has done for them, that they can be brought home to God and be driven in a life of loving like they've been loved so that on that day of judgment, when you make all things right and you deal with evil, that they will be welcomed into the kingdom. So, Lord, let it be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.